if you want to turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 4 to 16 this morning. Verses 4 to 16. Uh, it is our practice at Veritas to simply um, find a book or portion of Scripture and then slowly just make our way through that particular text of Scripture. And um, in some years, we focus on the Old Testament. And in some years, we focus on the New Testament. And we go back and forth. So this is an Old Testament year. We're focusing on the, the Old Testament. Last year, we focused on the New Testament. Next year, we'll focus on the New Testament. But this is an Old Testament year. And that's taken us through the book of Ecclesiastes and Psalm 23. And now we are in the uh, minor prophet Amos, and this is um, a challenging book, a hard book, um, in terms of having some theological principles that we maybe are not as familiar with, and it's a, a difficult book in, in terms of some of the hard words that are, are said here, but uh, this is God's word, and we believe that God's word uh, is inspired by God, and therefore it is always relevant for God's people to study and explore and, and proclaim and, and seek to understand and apply what God's word says to our lives today. Uh, and so look at Amos chapter 2. If you're a guest with us, we'd like to invite you to go to veritasdayton.org connect and uh, fill out the digital connect card there so that we know who you are and, and how we can get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. And we'd, uh, there's also a space in there for prayer requests. We'd love to be able to pray for you this week if you take a moment to fill out some prayer requests there. All right, well, uh, this past Sunday, we dug into Amos 2, uh, or Amos 1, verses 3 through chapter 2, verse 3, uh, and that's where we saw Amos kind of uh, address the immorality and the injustices of the nations, and uh, that, in all reality, probably shouldn't surprise us since uh, we know the world is, is full of nations and peoples who continually practice deception and brutality in order to oppress and exploit vulnerable peoples. But now, as we turn to Amos chapter 2, verses 4 to 16, we come to reckon with what happens when God's people uh, begin to be characterized by the same kinds of immorality and injustice? What happens when God's people think and do and act and behave just like the nations, just like the world does? And so we're going to dig into this text this morning. Uh, we're looking at two, chapter 2, verses 4 to 16, but we're, to begin with, we're just going to read verses 6 to 8. And so if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word out of respect for his word and reverence for his name, let's read uh, verses 6 to 8 of Amos chapter 2 here. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you anoint and empower the 
reading and preaching of your word with the presence and power of your spirit. Would you help us, Lord, to have open ears and open eyes and soft hearts to receive the truth of your word, to repent where we need to be repentant and to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, to be restored where we need to be restored. Convict us and comfort us now, we pray. Speak now, we pray, for your servants are listening. Through Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. You can have a seat. Well, I want us to, uh, you know, appreciate the, the brilliance of, of what, uh, the kind of brilliance that Amos, what Amos is doing here. Um, remember that Amos began his book, he began his book by comparing the Lord to a lion roaring in his pronouncements of judgment through the prophet, through Amos. And uh, he's about to consume the object of his judgment like a, like a lion consumes its prey. And the object of his judgment is the nation of Israel. But, but notice, he didn't start, as we looked at, at uh, the, the first and second chapter last week of Amos, notice he doesn't start with addressing Israel, does he? He, he, he first addresses several nations which are surrounding Israel, nations for whom Israel had profound hatred. And so you can imagine as Amos sets himself up in Israel and he goes maybe to the town square or in front of the, the, the temple in Bethel there where they set up their, their makeshift temple. Um, they, he, he sets himself up there and he begins declaring these, these messages of judgment. He, he begins declaring these judgments against the nations and, and against Israel's enemies there. And he's probably getting a lot of amens. He's probably getting a lot of hear hears. You know, and, and they really like what they're hearing. They really like it. They hate the Syrians and the, the Philistines and the Ammonites and the, the Moabites and all the rest. It, it would be kind of like a pastor, uh, an American pastor getting up in the pulpit post 9-11 and declaring uh, God's judgment against Al-Qaeda. It would be a very popular message, right? And, and then if you look at a, a map of Amos' day, you'll see that these nations which are surrounding Israel on every side... These are the nations that he's pronouncing judgment against. These nations are above Israel and below them and beside them and, and all around. And as Amos is pronouncing the Lord's judgments upon these nations, you can sort of get the picture of a lion circling its prey. That's, that's kind of what Amos is doing here. He's, he's, he give, he's giving a picture of a lion circling his prey. Each pronouncement is like the thump of the lion's paw as he goes around like a lion jogging around its prey. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Thump! For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Thump! For Tyre and Edom, thump, thump. For the Ammonites, thump. For Moab, thump. And then for Israel's twin sister, for three transgressions of Judah. And for four, thump. And then he does it. He pounces on Israel in verses 6 to 16. He's done circling. He pounces on Israel and he lays into them, tearing them apart with his words. And these are the words that we're going to be exploring this morning. Here we find the big idea that when immorality and injustice prevail in God's people, he will judge with purifying judgment. And we'll unpack that as we look at, one, the prevailing evils of God's people in verses 4 to 8. 
Two, the privileged position of God's people in verses 9 to 12. And three, the pronouncements of God's judgment in verses 13 to 16. And first, we see here the, the prevailing evils of God's people. And as we explore the, the prevailing evils of God's people, we're going to start with Judah and then move on to Israel. They, they can be taken together because together they are God's chosen people. But then also you can sort of see that there are eight nations mentioned here, and so they might be taken in pairs with Judah and Israel being the last pair here. And so Amos begins his indictment upon his people, uh, upon God's people, by saying, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then, in, 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 in same fashion as the rest of the nations that we saw last week, he tells of the specific sins and then the pronouncement of a specific judgment. He says, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And so Judah, like the nations, is guilty of three and four sins. Of course, remember that makes seven, which is the sort of symbol of fullness or completion. They've piled their sins high. They've filled up the cup of their iniquity so that heaven is about to pour them back on their head in judgment. But then unlike the nations, Judah's guilt is explicitly stated as violations of God's holy law in his word. So the nations were, were guilty of violating the law of God, which was uh, written on the human uh, heart and the conscience. But Judah not only possesses the law of God as it's written on the human heart and conscience, they possess God's written law. They possess the scriptures. And yet what have they done? They have rejected God's holy and precious word. They've not kept his word. Instead, they ran after their lies. And there's a vital lesson in this for us today, isn't there? So we, we don't often give thought to the, the precious gift that we've received in possessing the holy scriptures, do we? And what's more is we don't often give thought to the responsibilities we possess as stewards of such. Especially for those of us in the West, you know, with the amount of Bible translations and Christian publishers, with the amount of commentaries, with the amount of, of theological books and access to sermons and all the rest of it that we have, we have absolutely no excuse for biblical illiteracy. And yet it abounds here. And I'm not talking about outside the church, I'm talking about in our very own churches. That recent annual state of the Bible survey released by the American Bible Society, found that this year, between January and June, 13 million professing Christians in America who were previously engaging meaningfully with Scripture no longer were. Instead, what was taking up their time was doom-scrolling through social media feeds. Scripture, reading Scripture, studying Scripture was down really down, looking at social media was up, really up. And this is, this is a problem because as, as one pastor, I once heard one pastor say, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. You know, there's, there's, if you neglect God and his word, you don't just drift into a, a kind of state of neutrality. There's a vacuum, there's a, a void to fill. And so when you reject God's truth and his word, like the Judeans, you chase after lies. And this is exactly what happened with the Judeans. They ran after their lies and their idols. 
And so Amos pronounces God's fiery judgment that will come upon them, and it did through the Babylonians about 150 years later. And then next we see the lion pounce on Israel. And here's where he unleashes. He pronounces the same formula of judgment. Here he says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. But while he only mentions one or two transgressions when he is speaking to the other nations, he mentions eight transgressions when he addresses Israel. He mentions seven in verses six to eight, and then the eighth sin in verse 12. And that's a a, a kind of symbol of, of they're going above and beyond what is acceptable. They've gone above and beyond the completion or the fullness of what is uh, uh, allowable in terms of their sin and guilt. And these sins of immorality and injustice range from sins ranging in the, in the court bench to the bedroom. He begins by saying they sell the righteous for silver. And here Amos is, is condemning the practice of bribing judges in the court of law. So that the righteous or the legally innocent are unjustly condemned and sold into slavery. And so the judges are are corrupt, receiving bribes from the rich and elite in Israelite society. And then he mentions the sin of of selling the needy for a pair of sandals. Apparently, there was a, a specific example in Israel of that time. Someone who was living in poverty and they were so destitute that they had to take out a loan to purchase a pair of sandals. And yet when the borrower could not pay the loan back, the lender did not have mercy on them in their dire state as they were called to according to God's law. Instead, they sold them into slavery to work off their debts. And then the next two sins mentioned are are not as specific, but a little more generally stated. Amos says that the Israelites are those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. You see, he's, he's saying that they don't care about the plight of their poor brothers and sisters. When you're walking down the street or on the sidewalk and you see dust on the ground, what do you do? Do you go around it and, 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 and extra care for that dust or do you walk right over it, not giving it a moment's thought? Of course, it doesn't matter. It's just dust. You just walk right over it. Well, likewise, the Israelites just trampled on the poor without a care for their plight. When the poor and afflicted came to the wealthy in the streets and begged for mercy, for help, for relief, the wealthy turned them aside without a thought, without a care. And this is abhorrent in the sight of the Lord. As that great Dutch Calvinist minister said, Abraham Kuyper, When the rich and poor stand opposed to each other, the Savior never takes his place with the wealthier, but always stands with the poorer. Next we see Amos say that a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Again, we see the strong-armed oppression of vulnerable people. The word translated as girl here is, is speaking of a young female servant. We see here that a father and a son sexually abuse one of their household employees. It's horrendous. And next, he says, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. You see, Israel, in, in Israel, when someone was owed money, they could take their debtor's outer garment to ensure that payment would be made. But according to the Mosaic legal code required that those garments be returned every evening so that the debtor would have something to keep them warm at night very thoughtful. And apparently, many of the Israelites 
We're not returning these garments at night. And instead, they would wear them pompously when they went to a worship event. And they would sleep on them at night during these these weekly worship festivals that they would have. And next, it seems that they did something similar with the wine when when going to worship events and festivals. They would bring wine that they confiscated unjustly from the poor and they would drink it at their festivals and offer it to God in in a perverted form of worship. Now, what does that have to do with us today as God's people? Much, because you see here, the, the, the charge leveled against Israel is that while they are God's chosen people, they were acting just like the nations. They were just like the world. The acts of deception and brutality that so characterized the surrounding nations characterized Israel and Judah as well. And, and, and likewise, are we as, as Christians and as churches in America, are we immune from such charges? Why, in, in just the, the last couple of years, in the midst of a national conversation known as Me Too, wherein many powerful and elite men were ousted for sexual abuse and sexual harassment of women and children, another conversation began, it, wherein that, that, that many were calling Church Too, and stories were, were coming, were flooding in of individuals being sexually abused and harassed by members of their church and by pastors and of elaborate cover-up stories. And let's, let's bring it maybe even a little closer to home. We're a, a Southern Baptist church. Some of you may not know that. But let's talk about our particular association of churches. In February of last year, the, the Houston Chronicle released a series of articles detailing 20 years of abuses with over 700 victims across North America. There was abuse and harassment, rape and molestation and cover-ups made by convention presidents and megachurch pastors with no reforms, no repentance, no restitution in the very places where vulnerable people should be the safest and amongst the very people who ought to have defended them and protected them, they met with abhorrent injustices just like they would in the rest of the world. And of course, the the reality of that, the reality that our convention of churches is is no stranger to sin, is apparent in the first place. The SBC was, was conceived and born in sin. If you were to read much church history written by the SBC, you would find the claim that this convention began in an effort to cooperate in global missions in a more effective manner so that we could send as many people as possible to the nations so that the nations might hear the gospel and be saved. The reality is that while the convention was concerned with seeing peoples liberated from sin throughout the world, they enslaved a people here in their very own home soil. The convention was also conceived in the midst of a a disagreement with Northern Baptists over the issue of slavery. The Northern Baptists wanted to abolish slavery. The Southern wanted to continue. And so to continue to own people without interference from those pesky northerners, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. And you might, well, you might say that's a long time ago. What does that have to do with today? 
That's true. There have been resolutions passed in the convention condemning the practice and professing repentance of those heinous acts. Praise God. But the problem of racism in the SBC did not die when slavery was abolished in the U.S. And even recently, in this wonderful book, Removing the Stain of Racism from the Southern Baptist Convention, one pastor, Dwight McKissick, details, even in the last 20 years, there have been Southern Baptist churches that have denied baptismal rights and marriage rights to black congregants. There's been a denial of burial rights to a a, a biracial child at a Southern Baptist cemetery. There have been Southern Baptist missionaries denied speaking engagements because they adopted a black child. And we could go on and on, even to events that have happened in the last year. So as one pastor said recently about the Southern Baptist Convention, Jim Crow may be dead, but his ghost still haunts many of our churches. So what what are we to make of this? Last week, we we spoke of the the duty of the church to function as a prophetic voice in and as the conscience of our culture, and that's right. But what happens when we, as God's people, think and act and do just like the nation? What happens when we are corrupted and overtaken by the very same kinds of injustices and immoralities that we see in our culture? Our voice lacks credibility, of course. But what's more and what's worse is that as Amos is saying here, God's holy name is profaned. We're the people of God. His name is taken in vain in the worst way. We're the people of God. Chosen and redeemed in order to represent him as a kingdom of priests. Which brings us next to this this privileged position of God's people. And here Amos goes on in in verses 9 to 12 to describe God's grace and kindness to the people of Israel, which makes their sins all the more heinous. He says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. In other words, he's, he's saying... Look at how the Lord has treated you, Israel. You were an oppressed people in Egypt and the Lord had mercy on you and delivered you from the burdens of your oppression. You were a poor people with no land, no wealth, and yet the Lord generously gave you the land of the Amorites and yet here you are as a people freed from slavery and oppression and poverty and as a people have been generously given what you did not earn and you are oppressing and enslaving the vulnerable and poor in your midst? And this is a needful reminder for us, isn't it? As God's people. We need to remember that God's grace is never supposed to be an excuse to continue in sin. In fact, when it comes to the way that we interact with the marginalized and the vulnerable and the poor, it's actually supposed to be a motivation for justice and mercy. You see, because we ourselves as Christians were weighed down and oppressed by the burdens of sin and guilt. You were a people without hope and without God in the world. So when you look at the poor and the oppressed, don't you see, you're looking into a mirror of your own spiritual state apart from Christ. And yet the Lord had mercy upon you, didn't he? 
He sent his son to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die. And he rose again three days later to free us from the guilt of our sin and to deliver us from its power over our lives. So that we might follow Christ and be a faithful representative of him to this dying world. We've been given this privilege so that we might represent him. Been forgiven so that we might follow him. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, those who try to use grace as a dispensation from following Christ are simply deceiving themselves. But then Amos goes on to speak not just of their privilege, of what God has done for them in their redemption in the past, but the ongoing present privileges they possess as God's people. He says, and I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? So not only did he redeem Israel and give them his word, but he actually sent prophets to proclaim God's word to them and sent them Nazarites to be a faithful example of godly living. So the prophets like Amos were called to proclaim God's word to God's people and to call them to repentance. And God has given them prophets as this this means of grace so that they might be continually called back to him in repentance. And then the Nazarites, you can read about them in Numbers 6. There were a special group of, of men that were set apart in Israel to live holy lives. You might think of John the Baptist. He was a Nazarite. And they did this so that they might be an example of righteousness and holiness to God's people. And so you see, the, the Lord not only redeemed Israel and relieved them of oppression from slavery and, and poverty, but, but also in his grace and kindness, he continued to chase after his people in love when they ran away from him continued to call them back to himself through the preaching of his word. But what do we find in the eighth sin mentioned here in verse 12? But you made the Nazarites to drink wine and commanded the prophets saying you shall not prophesy. And there's a warning for us here as Christians, as a church. So we'll find later in Amos, he prophesies a coming famine. And he says, this is not a famine of bread or water, but a famine of the word of God in the land. You see, God, God sent prophets to proclaim his word in Judah and Israel, but when Israel didn't listen, eventually God stopped sending prophets. And today, the, 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 the prophets are no more, but the, the Lord sends pastors and preachers of his word to his people, those who are called to explain and argue and apply what the word of God says to our current context. And this is a great grace and kindness because we need to know what it means to follow Jesus today in our world, in our time. But if we as Christians and churches ignore the preaching of God's word and say to these individuals, you shall not prophesy, there very well might come a time in our land, in our denominations, in our churches, where there's a famine of the word of God. The word of the Lord is ignored for long enough. He, he very well may take his word from churches in America. Maybe we're already seeing this to some extent. As Christianity in the West declines and weakens and explodes in the global south. We'd be very careful not to harden our hearts and close our ears to God's word. May we be very careful to listen to his word and to faithfully apply it to our lives today as God's people. If we don't, then the Lord's judgments may very well fall on us. Which brings us lastly to the pronouncements of God's judgments. 
And lastly here, Amos pronounces God's judgment upon the nation of Israel in verses 13 to 16. He begins by saying, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. In other words, just like a, just like a cart heavily weighed down by lots of sheaves, wheat, crushes whatever it runs over so the Lord will run over Israel like a semi-crushes roadkill. And how does he plan to do this? Well, he plans on doing it by defeating their military through an invading nation. And so Amos speaks about this military defeat in vivid terms. He says, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. In other words, Israel, your your military may be mighty, but there's no one strong enough to escape what I'm bringing. The best and brightest, the strongest and fastest cannot withstand or escape my judgment. Of course, we know now This judgment came about 20 to 30 years after Amos prophesied, and it came through the nation of Assyria. Assyria had weakened during Amos' time, but they would regather and re-strengthen, and they would be God's means of judgment upon many of the nations surrounding Israel and upon Israel itself. And so, you know, part of what we need to see and appreciate here about God's character is that he is an impartial judge. Israel had presumed upon his grace and misjudged themselves as being special in and of themselves. And thus they sought to excuse their immorality and their injustice on that basis. And in so doing, they became just like the surrounding nations But because the Lord is an impartial judge, he will judge his people just as he will judge the surrounding nations, he says. But now, as we appreciate God's impartiality in judgment here, we also need to appreciate that his judgments against his people and his judgments against the nations differ in a very significant sense. And that's this. His his judgments against his people are temporal and purifying judgments, not eternal and punitive judgments. God does not judge his people with punitive judgments because Christ took the punitive judgment that we deserve himself on the cross. And neither is the judgment of God's people eternal since our eternal judgment took place there too. Christ, his death upon the cross, he took the penalty, the eternal penalty that all of God's elect deserve upon the cross there. So that we would never have to bear the punishment that our sins deserve. But at the same time, the Lord saves his people so that we might be a kingdom of priests so that we might represent him to all the nations of the earth. And when we fail to fulfill this sacred vocation, the Lord will sometimes send painful providences and sufferings upon our lives to wake us up to the reality of our sin and to wean us from the world's allure. He doesn't punish his people with his judgments. He purifies. We'll see that as we progress through Amos and see the promise of a a remnant emerging from Israel like gold through the Lord's fires of judgment. For now, we, we might do well to consider how the Lord's judgments against his people might purify his people. 
How, how, how the Lord's judgment and discipline against the church and churches is actually a mercy. When the Lord sends painful providences and suffering upon the church, the church benefits in several ways. Here are just a couple. First, sleepy and sinning Christians are awakened to repentance. Sleepy and sinning Christians are awakened to repentance. When the Lord's temporal judgments come upon us, if our hearts are increasingly lulled to sleep by the comforts of this present age, if we're being continually drawn in by the sirens of this world, if we're perpetually continuing in sinful activities and attitudes, the Lord's judgments are like smelling salts that rouse us to repentance. C.S. Lewis once put it, he said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Or maybe you should say it's his megaphone to rouse deaf Christians in sleepy churches. There's much more we could say here, but for the sake of time, we should move on. Another mercy given in God's temporal and purifying judgments is that false Christians in the church are exposed. And in their exposure, they either begin to truly believe or leave the church, thus leaving a purer, more faithful church. And this is not something that's very pleasant to talk about, but it's something that we must consider as we explore this text. There's, there are false believers in the church today. There very well may be false believers in this room. Those who have deceived others and themselves with their false profession of faith. I imagine that as Christianity becomes more and more disdained in the West that many of these will be exposed. And of course, what we desire for these false Christians to do is to begin to truly believe and truly repent and truly trust in Jesus and we should pray and preach and and share fellowship as a church to, to that end to see that take place but that won't always be the case sometimes as Christians are viewed less and less favorably in our time it will be those who leave the church and begin to deny the faith altogether which is tragic and painful it's heartbreaking But at the same time, you must realize that false or fake Christians in the church hurts the church. They misrepresent Christ and they compromise the church's witness as a representative of Christ. And so we don't want people pretending to be followers of Christ in the church. We want them to be exposed so that they might truly believe or stop misrepresenting Christ. More could be said here, but that's part of the result of God's temporal and purifying judgments in the church. But that's not all we see here. We should also see here an invitation. You see, because the Lord never pronounces his judgments in his word without doing so as an invitation to see our sins as he sees them and to judge them in ourselves in repentance. Harry Ironside perhaps put it best when he said this. He said, sin never dies a natural death. It must be thoroughly judged. Like leaven, it is stopped by fire, by judgment, self-judgment or God's judgment. For sin ever works on until it is judged. When indulged in by an individual or permitted in a company, it continues working, though often imperceptibly, until it is judged, either in oneself or in God's people or by God himself. 
You see, in confrontations like this in God's word, the the Lord is inviting us into this kind of self-judgment before we meet with his judgment. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31 tells us. And by self-judgment, I'm not advocating for what the Apostle Paul cautions against in 1 Corinthians 4.3. There, Paul is, is warning against judging oneself against one's own human standards. No, I'm not talking about that. We're talking about coming to the Lord in contrition and sorrow and condemning one's own sin before him as the Lord defines it. Confessing and condemning one's own sin and heartfelt repentance before the Lord and before his people. Putting one's own sin to death by warring against it, battling against it with fervor and perseverance. We as God's people are called to such as those who fear and revere him. But then there's, there's another invitation here too. This self-judgment has both personal and communal dimensions, doesn't it? Because at times, we in the church, we who profess faith in Christ, will sometimes fall out of repentance and fail to judge ourselves in this way. And so the Lord has given the church the mandate to judge one another in order to maintain the purity of Christ's church and to maintain the faithfulness of our witness in the world. And this is why he's given us this practice that we call church discipline. Practice that Christ himself laid out for us in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. And we find that when a professing Christian, a fellow church member, falls into sins of immorality and injustice, others in the church are called to confront their sin and the offender is to repent. But if they fail to repent at the initial confrontation, then they should be taken two or three along with for another confrontation. And if that fails, the entirety of the church is to be informed. And they're to, if, if they don't listen to the entirety of the church, they are to be removed from the fellowship of the church. And the Apostle Paul speaks of this very practice of judgment in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, when he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not those in, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Of course, this call to judge is, is not a call to have a judgmental attitude or to discipline every sin in the church. As the Apostle Paul, or as the Apostle Peter rather, tells us in 1 Peter 4 8, love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, he's saying you can't discipline every sin in the church. There's a call to overlook one another's sins to some degree and to bear with one another in patience. But at times, the immorality, the injustice becomes too heinous, too scandalous, too vicious, and it must be judged. It must be judged with an aim of seeing the one judged restored to repentance. It must be judged with an aim of maintaining the integrity of our witness as representatives of Christ. And it must be judged so that God's holy name is not profaned in our midst. My friends, we we are God's people. We are called to represent him in this world. And part of what that requires is that we maintain our distinctiveness as his people. We must live lives that showcase the holiness of God and the kindness he has shown to us in the gospel. We must live in obedience to his word. And when we fail, we must participate in that hard practice of self-judgment both personally and communally. We do not, the roar of the lion may very well come to us. 
And as an impartial judge, he may very well pounce on us in judgment with purifying judgment. And so I close in saying this, let Israel be a lesson to us here. As Jesus himself said in Luke 13, 5, unless we repent, we shall all likewise perish. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the warnings in your word. We pray that you would cause us to heed your warnings, to continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, to never use your grace as a dispensation from following Jesus, but that it would invigorate us all the more to follow Christ, to love him, to obey him, to trust him, to follow him always. Father, and as we come to the Lord's table, we give you thanks for the judgment that he bore on our behalf on his cross. We pray that you would also give us the strength to treat this as an occasion of self-judgment where we repent and confess what needs to be repented and confessed and then gladly take hold of what you've offered us in your son, full and free forgiveness forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we offer this prayer to you. Amen.